Thank you for listening to the Austin Connection podcast. The Austin Connection is also a free newsletter and community on Substack. Check it out at austinconnection.substack.com. See you there. You wouldn't want to be miserable and rich. At the same time, you wouldn't want to be happy and poor. So <laughs> you're trying to choose the path that's going to enable you to live a comfortable life, which, all, of course, all these kids want to do with doing something you actually get pleasure from. It's the same thing as marriage. It's just this is your version of, this, of the marriage plan. Louis Menand is a New Yorker writer and a Harvard professor who tries to get his Harvard students to read and understand and appreciate the stories of Jane Austen, among other classic authors. That's his day job. Louis Menand teaches and co-founded a popular year-long humanities course at Harvard with another professor, Stephen Greenblatt. Louis Menand says that Harvard class and also the ways we read Jane Austen are getting more global in scope and more historical. Our perspectives, you might say, are expanding. This is the Austin Connection. An article Louis Menand wrote in September 2020 captured our attention. It was titled, How to Misread Jane Austen. It examines some current thinking about Austen and how she's interpreted in today's world. Menand's latest book is The Free World, Art and Thought in the Cold War. It's about history and the ideas that fuel it. And this is what most of Menand's books and writing is about. But we interrupted Louis Menand's book tour to see if he'd like to take a break from the Cold War and talk about Jane Austen. Turns out he did. So we talked about reading, writing about, and teaching Jane Austen, and how you get Harvard freshmen to appreciate and understand Austen. Here's our conversation. So, okay, so you have been on the road having really, really, I don't know if you've been on the road, but you've been having a lot of serious discussions about uh, The Free World, your latest yeah. book, Art and Thought in the Cold War. How did you feel, first of all, to get a, a, a request from me to talk about Jane Austen? It was a, re it was a relief because every other request <laughs> is to talk about the Cold War. So this Jane Austen interlude, you are always looking at history and culture through the lens of art and ideas. Is this helpful for you as you read Jane Austen? Are there parallels at all between Jane Austen and what you're doing right now, what you're talking about right now with the, with the free world? Yeah, I'm always interested in the circumstances that in which something was made. And uh, so for Jane Austen, it's, you know, it's an interesting period in European history. And so as a, just as a, re, if whoever it would be, whoever novel I was reading, I would be interested in seeing the way in which the work reflected the conditions in which it was produced. And in Austin's case, it's particularly interesting to do that because she's been received in a kind of ahistorical way for a long time as kind of eternal comedy of manners or courtship stories. And which is how a lot of people read the books, but um, and not until fairly recently have people really tried to look beyond the story and to see what elements of her historical context show up in the books. And that makes them read a little bit differently when, once you start to do that. Okay, well, I'd love to ask you a little bit more about that. But let me ask first, I mean, wh why did you write uh, the article that you wrote that led me to reach out to you in the New Yorker, how to misread Jane Austen. What led to that? I don't remember how it came about, but probably, <laughs> okay. probably, probably the magazine 
sent me a list of books and I saw there were a couple of Jane Austen books coming out more or less at the same time. And I suggested something about Jane Austen. And I don't remember what, whether they were interested or not interested at first, but I, I did it. I did the piece. Um, I was wanted to do it because I teach uh, Jane Austen quite a lot. Um, just the kind of particular course that I teach, we often do Jane Austen. And so, um, so I had something to say, and then I wanted to look at these books and do a little research and come up with something interesting about Jane Austen. So that's how it, it's just, it's just a magazine piece, but it came about the way they usually do, but usually it's something I'm interested in that they're sort of interested in. And then we settle on a piece. So that was one thing I wanted to ask you about teaching Jane Austen. Um, what is the course that you teach where you talk with students about Jane Austen and what is it like teaching Jane Austen and how has it changed? Has it, if at all? Yeah. I, for the last bunch of years, I've been teaching a course with a bunch of colleagues for first year students in which we read sort of classic texts and we start with Homer and, you know, we read, Shakespeare, Dante, and so on. Well, I've read about this course. That's yeah. a that's kind of a big deal. That course doesn't sort of every freshman take this, <laughs> and it's a big seminar. And yeah, yeah, yeah. it's a it's limited enrollment, so they students have to apply to get into it. So it's okay. kind of, but it's not by Harvard standards, it's not a particularly big course, but it's okay. students. It has a lot of student demand, and uh, it's become quite successful. Um, because the teaching is quite good. We get really good teachers in the class. So I've been doing it with my colleague, Stephen Greenblatt for more than 10, maybe 12 years. Um, and it, every time we do it, it gets slightly different depending on who's teaching it. And it's gotten much more global for obvious reasons that it used to be quite European. But anyway, so we often do Jane Austen, not always, but almost always. Um, and usually it's Emma or Mansfield Park. Um, and sometimes I give the lecture on Emma, sometimes somebody else gives the lecture. So that's how we teach it. So to answer your question, students generally don't like it. Um, and it's frustrating because I think they're really fascinating books and uh, students are put off by the length partly. So Emma is a pretty long novel in which not that much happens. Uh, I think it's about 50 pages too long anyway, but um, it, students get bored and they don't understand what they're reading for because they don't get that there's kind of subtext in that story that, that they're completely missing. Um, and then it's hard to persuade them to be interested in this kind of gentrified group of white people from, you know, 1810 or whatever. Um, you know, they just feel it's not relevant. And um, so it's tough to teach. I would say this probably hope this is not unfair stereotyping, but male students in particular often will actually object to having to read the novel. And so, you know, some students love it, obviously, um, but, but it's a little bit of a hard sell. So, but we haven't given up on it because we think it's important to understand Austin first because of her importance in the history of the novel from a kind of technique point of view because of free and direct style, which we teach them about. Um, and then, uh, as a realist novelist, because we end the class doing Jane Joyce's Ulysses, and you kind of have to know the history of realism to kind of get a little bit about what he's doing in that novel. So, so we still teach it, and I still enjoy uh, teaching it. Okay, so you have to understand Jane Austen, so you understand what James Joyce is doing in reaction, <laughs> if nothing else. That's interesting. I mean, 
Well, I just was, I wouldn't say it's a reaction because if you think about one of the jobs that the novel is trying to perform from the 18th century, it's to be able to represent what's going on in people's heads. And hmm. free and direct style is, was, a, was a breakthrough in doing that so that you can hear what's going on in Emma's head without having to quote her directly um, because the narrator tells you. And in Joyce, he does it with stream of consciousness, but it's sort of the same project. So it's not, he's, of course, he's doing various postmodernist things with the form, but he's also developing a technique that was in, in you know, people were trying to develop over the course of about a hundred years. So, so she, you know, she's important for understanding stream of consciousness. Oh, that's really interesting. Okay, I never thought about that. It does strike me that that's a little more inventive than she's given credit for. So what do you do to guard against this, re this, this attitude of the students you, you basically just said it to me, like there's a subtext, they're missing it. Um, yeah. It's preparing the way for, you know, really inventive writers who are known for being inventive, like James Joyce. Yeah. Um, what, how, what do you do? Uh, do you In ever way, win them over? Yeah, well, yeah, you, I mean, you persuade them that it's important to know this stuff. I mean, they may mm -hmm. not take pleasure reading it, because um, mainly because of the length. The students don't like to read things more than about 100 pages anymore. Mm -hmm. um, it's just true. It's very hard to assign longer books, um, whatever they are. Dickens is hard to assign. They just won't read Blake House. It's too long. So in the case of Austin, yeah, you can persuade them that she really pioneered this technique of free and direct style, she may not have been the very first person to do it, but she certainly was very accomplished at it and had a big influence. And so yeah, that's important because, as I said, uh, for the realist novel to describe interiority is, is, a, is a, a task. You have to figure out how you're going to do that. Um, and because normally you're just describing things as they're seen from the outside. And so she's able to do that. And that's important in the history of the novel. And then to the extent that's a project that novelists are working on, Joyce is kind of culmination of it with the, with the stream of consciousness. And so it's a, it's a technical thing. And a lot of the students do want to be creative writers and they're interested in learning about techniques of fiction. So from that point of view, that's, you know, they, they're interested in that. They're interested in understanding what this concept of free and direct, free and direct style means. And then, um, the other way that you interest them <laughs> when I teach Emma is I embarrass them about not knowing what's going on in the novel while they're reading it. Um, they don't know about Frank and Jane because they're not paying attention to it. And I point out all the clues that Jane Austen drops along the way about what's going on with Frank and Jane, which they completely missed. So if you can sort of <laughs> show them that they're not very attentive readers in addition to being, you know, hard to please um, it has a little bit of an effect and then another thing that which i don't do but stephen does is uh he shows them marriage announcements that are in the newspaper like the new york times where they have weddings and they have um the sort of the standard format for those regular stories in which you know this couple gets together and it tells you where they went to college oh, and yeah. who their parents are where their parents work and um I, so I picked some out of the New York Times and I picked some out of the New York Daily News, which has a different, completely different readership um, in terms of class. Mm -hmm. And the students were able to read these wedding announcements and knew exactly who these people were in the New York Times stories because they were exactly the kind of people they go to school with, like themselves. So mm -hmm. they, they knew what 
the firms their parents worked at. <laughs> they kind of knew what you know, what kind of college they went to, what kind of what status. I mean, they had a very clear sense of of social status based on this information. And that's a lot of what goes on, of course, in a novelist like Jane Austen is you're seeing these characters as social types and you're able to rank them based on income and, you know, um, and ancestry and land possession, all that stuff. And, and everybody has a very keen sense of where everybody else fits into the structure. And, and we're pointing out to students, you have the same thing. Your world is just the same as her world, where it's very hierarchical, and you know kind of intuitively where you want to be in that hierarchy. Then when you look at the New York Daily News ones, it's quite different because they go to Queens College, they've got their accountant. It's a very different class, but they still have they still have it's still the same you know sort of social system. It's just a slightly different one, different borough, so to speak, from from the New York Times. And so that's all kind of interesting too because it shows that everybody inhabits a world of social difference in which they have to negotiate their own status. And so that's helpful, I think, for students to see that Jane Austen is representing something that they can uh, identify with. That's really interesting. So you take something that's very much of our day and of their day and of their time um, uh, and, and in a way sort of challenge them with like, okay, so what are you going to do with this? Well, here's what Jane yeah, Austen did yeah. with this. Yeah, you think this stuff is boring? You know, why isn't your life boring? I mean, your life isn't that different from the lives of these characters. You're listening to The Austin Connection. We're talking with Louis Manant. He's a writer for The New Yorker and a Harvard professor who teaches Jane Austen in the Humanities 10 freshman popular course that tackles Emma and other classics with his co-founder of the course, Stephen Greenblatt. Louis Manan says Austin is important not just as an early seminal novelist in English, but also as an innovator. You have to understand Austin to understand innovative writers like James Joyce. Louis Manand challenges his students to work out clues in Austin. He gets us Harvard freshmen to see that we're all inhabiting a world of status and class and love and money and marriage that we all have to navigate, as we will. Coming up, Louis Menand and I discuss the courtship plot. And he says, part of understanding marriage in Austin is understanding the math and the money behind marriage in Austin. We also talked about the novel, Emma. For Louis Menand, this novel is really about Frank Churchill and Jane Fairfax. And as many of you know, I agree with that. Here's the rest of our conversation. Well, you've, you've already mentioned something, class, and then in your um, article, which I'll basically just sort of unpack your article because it's such a great guide to just uh, the topics of Jane Austen. You spend a lot of time talking about money and uh, how a lot of people misread the money situation when they're reading Jane Austen. What do you tell your students and what do you think generally as you're reading about Jane Austen and money and inequality? Yeah, well, I try to stress that too because... They are sensitive to inequality as a social issue, um, and they're aware of income and wealth disparities in the population in the United States today. And so um, I try to show them what the situation was like in 1815 in England, how wealth was distributed and what income enabled you to live a middle-class life and what income didn't. And I point out that all the characters in Jane Austen, virtually all the major characters, she tells us how much money they have. 
Exactly. They don't, students today, of course, don't know what 10,000 pounds means, but people in 19th century Britain knew exactly what it meant. They knew exactly how, where it placed you if you had 10,000 pounds in the social order. So that's an interesting insight into what she's trying to represent by telling you what people's fortunes are worth. Um, and of course, that's connected to the whole courtship plot because you want to maximize your love interest with your financial benefit. So you want to have the highest point of intersection between love and money. And, and that's what the characters are trying to negotiate for themselves. They don't want to marry a creep just to be rich, but they don't want to marry a nice person to, and be poor. Um, and I don't think it's different for anybody. Well, we, what I do tell them about the courtship plot. So the courtship plot or marriage plot, as it's called, um, it's just pretty standard 19th century novel plot. And one thing I tell them is that for us today, the plot, a marriage plot isn't terribly exciting because you can always get divorced. Mm -hmm. And frequently both partners are fairly equal in terms of ability to make money and so forth. So it's not as though um, if the marriage doesn't work, it's a complete disaster for both parties. There's all kinds of ways to fix that and get beyond it. So we tend to think that marriage plots are, you know, they're just, they, they don't seem particularly compelling to us because we don't see the urgency of it. Of course, in Jane Austen's time, if a woman married, married the wrong guy, she, her life was destroyed. Uh, she had no way of making that back. Mm -hmm. So, but that's not true today. It's really for these stu my students. Right. But I say I to them, you have, you're facing exactly the same dilemma in your own lives as the Jane Austen characters are who are trying to maximize love and money. And that's choosing a career because you're trying to choose a career, something that maximizes both something you enjoy doing and brings you the maximum amount of income. So the same thing is true as true of the marriage thing where you wouldn't marry the wrong guy just for the money. You wouldn't take the wrong career just for the money. You wouldn't want to be miserable and rich. At the same time, you wouldn't want to be happy and poor. So you're trying to choose the path that's going to enable you to live a comfortable life, which all, of course, all these kids want to do with mm -hmm. doing something you actually get pleasure from. It's the same thing as marriage. It's just, this is your version of, this, of the marriage plot. Yeah. The courtship plot, do you, do you see that as, I, I tend to almost see the courtship plot as a vehicle for Jane Austen to say many other things about relationships, about families, about life and, and money and the precariousness of, of the lives of women. But you actually, I got from your article that you uh, tend to read Jane Austen's courtship plots as actually her saying something about, and I think this is probably true, saying something about actual relationships too, that she is, has something to say about relationships and family relationships as well as uh, marriage and, and love relationships. What's going on with that interplay, do you feel like, between the courtship plot um, as a vehicle and then actually her actual uh, content of what she's wanting to tackle? My feeling is I don't, I don't know what she thought. It's impossible to know what she thought. That's what's fascinating about it is that she could be describing a kind of life, British gentry, that was idyllic and admirable, which people use manners to negotiate courtship and some family issues and so forth. Or she could be remorselessly critical of that life. And these are privileged people whose lives are 
built on injustice and inequality, and, and they're completely clueless about all that. So it's impossible to know what she thought because she's just very good at not being there. Um, so, I don't, so I don't know whether she wanted patriarchy to be an issue for her readers that she's bringing their attention to, the plight of women and that kind of social arrangement, or whether she thinks it's just the way things are and there's nothing you can do about it. It's very hard to tell. I mean, like you, I tend to think she's a social critic, but we really, it's, it's really, you can't prove it, let's put it that way. And interestingly, there's no biographical information that would suggest that she was a social critic. Nobody seems to have thought that she was sort of a hothead or a revolutionary or anything like that. That doesn't mean she wasn't. It's just very, it's just, it's, the evidence is just very thin. What do you think people typically miss? What are some of your favorite things about Jane Austen that you think people miss? Maybe even some of your colleagues, not to mention your students, miss. Well, I mean, I don't think, I think a lot, most people, most people I know who work on Jane Austen know, understand her, but, um, but. Do not I understand her? Do, do understand do her. Understand I, mean, I, don't her. I, have, I don't think I have unique insight into Jane Austen, <laughs> but I think that. Part of it is the money thing, like what the money, what the sums actually mean, 10,000 pounds, what does that mean? 30,000 pounds, what does that mean? And so part of it is just that, that you, there's a, there's a story in the money and you need, unless you get what those sums represent, you don't understand that part of the story. Um, so that's part of it. And then something that I've felt about Emma, um, which is, I guess, the book I've taught the most, uh, is that Everyone I know, including colleagues uh, who work on the novel, think it's all about Emma and Mr. Knightley. Mm -hmm. And I think that that story and how it comes out is sort of Jane Austen's moral vision of <laughs> how things ought to work, where a kind of uh, impetuous, irresponsible, but intelligent woman meets somebody who sort of sets her right. And that she also, you know, has some leverage on him too, blah, blah, blah. So it's, everybody's very happy with the marriage. <laughs> and then yes. it, it looks it looks like the social system has worked because mm -hmm. it solved the problem of Emma Woodhouse by marrying her to the right guy. Yes. And I point out there's another marriage in the book that nobody yes. pays attention to, which is Frank and Jane. They're completely, Frank is completely irresponsible. Mm -hmm. He doesn't do anything the way it's supposed to be done. He lies about himself. He, he toys with Emma's affections. He disguises his relationship with Jane until the last minute. Um, and it's all because he's trying to get money out of the Churchills. Uh, and they get married and, and they have way more money and can be way happier than, than Emma and Mr. Yeah. Knightley, but everybody ignores that. So it's kind of funny because the whole book is about Emma ignoring it because she's, of course, blinded by her own self-centeredness, but the reader ignores it too. And then when you get yeah. to the end, everybody thinks it's all about Mr. Knightley. It's not about Mr. Knightley, it's about Frank. It's really a novel about Frank. But, well, it's so funny that you say that. it's, let me just stop you there, because you say it's a really a novel about Frank. Um, this is maybe slightly gendered readings, which makes total sense by you and me. I think the novel's really about Jane. Okay, that's fine. <laughs> so either keep one. going. <laughs> no, either one. But the point is that they're at, they, they suffered. They mm, were, yes. they, Frank was sold yes. by his father. Right. He was sold to the Churchills. And Jane was cast out. So they go, they brought up somewhere else. Frank has even been back to Highbury his entire life since he left when he was four or whatever. So they have no interest in Highbury. They were, they, these are people who threw them out. 
So they have a huge grudge about this whole society, but they have to disguise it to get what they want, which is to be with each other. So it's a great, there's one movie version of the zillion movie versions of Emma, was the first scene of the little kids being driven away from Highbury and carriages. I don't know which one that is. I love that one. I know what you're talking about. Yeah, it's exactly the right scene because that Mm -hmm. sets up the whole story. But instead, readers get infatuated with the social world of Highbury and they kind of miss they kind of miss what the fun part of the story is, which is this, you know, people who don't, could care less about Highbury, you know. Yeah, you're right. But I, I love that the, the Emma is my favorite novel. Um, if if you are able to um, get your students interested in Emma, I, I mean, and, and if they do turn a corner and if you do kind of manage to to sell Emma, what what is it that they do relate to and that they do get excited about? They're, you know, they're interested in, the, as I said, the technique questions, because um, they like having a concept they can understand. I think that they come to appreciate the, the depth of what didn't look very deep the first time they read it. Um, but it goes by very quickly. So, I just want to ask you some, some fun questions. I have some kind of brainy questions, um, but right. if you have a moment, well, <laughs> do you have a favorite Austin novel? I think Pride and Prejudice is the best novel by far, yeah. It's Why? the funniest. It's the funniest. It's just funny. Um, mm-hmm. So I think it's, yeah. And then it, I think the, uh, Elizabeth is a great character. I like her much more than Emma uh, or Fanny Price. I just think it's great. Um, I think it's her, you know, it's her best, it's her, it's her best book, I think. Um, you- I like, there's none of them I don't like, I guess. Let me think of one I don't. I like all the, like, Persuade. I like all of them. But I think Pride Prejudice is sort of like just, a classic. You mentioned that that it's the funniest. I, do you feel like uh, sometimes you're having to bang it over the head to people that like Austin is funny? Like this is funny. This is uh, sarcasm. Yeah. <laughs> she does not truly believe that is a truth universally <laughs> acknowledged. Yeah, yeah. No, <laughs> they get, they know that. They get the irony. It's not that they don't get my students anyway. They know the they get the irony. Sure. And they all know the first sentence of Pride and Prejudice. First thing I ask them is, what's the first sentence? Like five people. Really? That's fine. Yeah, they all know it. Yeah, well, women do anyway. Yeah, they all know it. No, they sometimes they actually... get that. They yeah. understand that. Yeah, they, and I, I've not taught Pride and Prejudice, but I, I would assume they think it was funny. We probably should teach it because it's funnier than him. Maybe so, yes. Maybe that that's sort of the gateway drug, I think, to Austin, right? Pride and Prejudice. So, that's what um, they read in high school, you see. So if we... Another issue we have is, have they read this book in high school? If they read in Austin in high school, it's likely to be Pride and Prejudice. So you mentioned in your article something, this was kind of a brainy question, but something that you said, which is that Austin is sort of ventriloquizing through her characters. I think that might, I'm not sure that was your word, but um, okay. Uh, And then not just writing characters as they are, but also writing their discursive bubble. What is Jane Austen's discursive bubble? Yeah, well, she's she's writing about her characters in the language that they would use to describe themselves. Okay, and that's what makes it impossible to, or difficult to figure out her own perspective on it. Yes, so, yeah. but she's making them. I mean, it's the language that they would use only way better, right? I mean, <laughs> yes, right. <laughs> which is where the art comes in. Okay, right. and then also to to the um, idea of Jane Austen being funny, you said something that I thought was also that I almost never hear. I mean, I've never heard anyone point out, which is that 
and I think it is something that's very satisfying about reading Jane Austen and a lot and something that's very satisfying about a lot of art that we engage in, which is that she lets us in on the joke. I think that's exactly how you put it. And that's kind of a sure way to win people over. And you know, as somebody who teaches journalism, I see this in journalism. I, it, it, the first thing I thought of when I read that, what you wrote in your article was I thought of Michael Moore, who, you know, his, all of his documentaries are uh, critiquing something, but letting you in and making you feel as the viewer that you're part of that joke. Yeah. Um, and, and I feel like that's what John Oliver does. And I feel like that's why, um, as, as a journalist, I feel like this is a more engaging way to get the news is to get it from John Oliver. And that's what is happening is people feel like they're in on the joke. Do you have thoughts on how Austin used humor to let us in on the joke and bring us round in a way to, I would say, questioning the patriarchy, potentially, whether she was even consciously doing this or not. I think she was questioning at least um, the established notions, <laughs> which is what most art is doing, right, in some way, um, but doing it through humor. Any thoughts on that? No, I think that's true. And particularly some of the buffoonish characters like Mr. Collins yeah. or uh, in uh, Mansfield Park, Mr. Rushworth. She's, yeah, she's holding them up for ridicule. So that, yeah, that's part of it. And another part of it, which is an obvious thing to say, is that what's, what's striking about all of her novels is the women characters are very strong characters. They really drive the story and they get what they want in the end, all of them. Um, yes. So that's, you know, the men are kind of, the men think they're in charge, but actually, you know, um, they're in charge in certain ways, but in terms of the relationship part, the women are in charge. And I think that Austin particularly loved young women who were marriageable, but not married, because they were the only kind of woman who had the power to say no to a man. Hmm. And proposed to her, she could say no. And nothing would happen. I mean, she would not be sanctioned for that. So that power is what gives, you know, Eleanor Dashwood, all these characters, the kind of Elizabeth Bennett, they give all these characters the kind of vigor and uh and strength that makes them very appealing. Yes, and the power of, course, of refusal. As the power to, of Henry refusal, they, that, could, they could tell a man to buzz off. I mean, she tells Mr. Darcy to bust off and know in certain terms. And it's a fantasy. she can do that, even though he's incredibly <laughs> rich guy. Yes. He can do that. So that is very empowering to have that ability in a society in which otherwise the women basically have to just take orders. So that's, I think that's part, that's why she creates these characters. And that's why readers for 100, 200, whatever it's been, 200 years identify with those characters and, and care about them because that they're very strong characters. You're making, listening to you, uh, yes, that is that power of refusal, that first proposal and Darcy saying, you know, um, you're actually even sparing me <laughs> from feeling bad, which I would have done if you'd acted in a more gentlemanly manner. And, you know, yeah. it's just such a shocking thing to say to yeah. someone who's so rich and powerful yeah. in the Regency world to say, you know, here's who is she to talk about what a gentleman is. There's all kinds of things going on. Um, but including just uh, just having some fun and just empower that empowerment that you you use the word empowering um, is just part of it. That's what you can do in fiction. That's the art of it, right? Yeah, she's obviously taking pleasure in creating these little stories. Yes. <laughs> well, I I have a last question okay. for you based on your your wonderful article. How to Misread Jane Austen in the New Yorker, where you kind of unpacked, you know, some people are reading this 
for sociology and some for the romance. This is right. almost an exact quote. And you you kind of ask the question, you know, who's right? What what is your answer to that? Is it the sociology or is it the romance? It's both. She's right. It's both. That's what's interesting about it. There's it's a romantic story. People fall in love, um, try to get together, and then there's also sociological study. You could say of the British gentry and their ways, uh, how they go about things. So she's a great observer. She was a little bit of an outsider in that world, as you know, herself. She was a, what's called the pseudo gentry. <laughs> she didn't really have the income to be like the gentry, but she knew them. She socialized with them. She had the same tastes as they had, and she understood them. And she's so she's observing it. And she's still, and as an observer, she also sees, the, has the ability to make up these great romantic stories. So it's both things. I don't think you have to choose. I think it's Great. possible to both, yeah. That's awesome. What would you uh, want people to keep in mind when they read Jane Austen? Just look for the sociology if you're missing it, that's all. Because you're missing half of the half of the novels. That's great advice. So uh, you're not going to miss the romance. That's there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so look, so... look for the sociology as well. Yeah, all right. right. This has been great. Thank you very much. You're very welcome. Thank you. It's been a huge pleasure. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. You bet. Bye. That was Harvard professor and New Yorker writer Louis Menand talking with us at the Austin Connection about reading, understanding, deciphering, and teaching Jane Austen. This is the last podcast from season two of the Austin Connection. More conversations like this are at the Austin Connection Substack. You can sign up for the free newsletter and have all the things Austin dropped into your inbox every week. You'll find us at austinconnection.substack.com. Stay well, stay tuned. Happy New Year and see you at the Austin Connection.